uh, from Arda Readers. Uh, I'm really delighted today to have Sila Vardin with me. Hello, Sila Vardin. Hello. Hello. Very nice uh, to be here. Yeah, it's very mm. nice to see you, actually. Um, mm. Sila Vardin is a member of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order. He's a practicing Buddhist for about 30 years now. And he's also a philosopher, which is unusual to have a practicing Buddhist Order member who's also a, a philosopher. And um, I think you do certain things within the movement with philosophy, don't you? I remember uh, going to a class of yours where you were teaching us how to speak to each other uh, with, with different... Um, when you disagreed with each other about a, a point, how to do that. And yeah. uh, you introduced me to something which uh, was really, really valuable, and I've been using it ever since, or trying to. I don't always, I have to admit. Um, the idea is charitas, uh, charity, yeah. where um, when somebody gives you an argument opposing to your own, uh, you don't go for the weakest possible argument, you go for the strongest one. And if yeah. your opponent um, doesn't put their argument across very well, not yeah. at its strongest, you make it, you help them to make it stronger, and then you argue against that. Uh, that yeah. was a really, really valuable session for me. Yeah. Um, yes, and yes, you do things within the order, don't you? Uh, every yeah. year, I think, you have uh, a symposium at Adistana looking at various philosophical issues, yes? Yeah, with uh, Divan and uh, Matt Drake. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And you've yeah. just done one, although you couldn't go because of the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. There was two weeks ago, there was the last one about yeah. uh, evolution, actually, yeah. Ah, okay. So evolution, yeah. and that's actually what I'm going to interview about today, mm -hmm. uh, evolution. So let's just plunge in. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, we all have heard of evolution, and we're, everyone is very familiar with the idea of Charles Darwin and random mm -hmm. selection and survival of the fittest and so on. But to make sure we have understood that, can you just give us uh, an outline of Darwin's ideas for us? Well, the Darwin's ideas, it was uh, actually one of the proponents of this. Uh, Daniel Dennett is one of the most famous uh, defenders of this view. He says a uh, Darwinian view is like a, it's like a, um, randomness. It's, an, it's, an, um, uh, it's uh, the principle of randomness made big. So it's the one pillar is a random change. Everything is just random. And uh, the, the other pillar is, so to speak, survive, survival of the fittest. So if you have random change, uh, things are just floating around randomly without any meaning or purpose. Uh, well, and then you have lots of stuff floating around, so to speak, uh, animals or atoms, or, and then you have this uh, principle of survival of the fittest, and then building on these stones, yeah, you get the whole uh, universe, so to speak. Yes, so the, yeah. the only purpose of evolution in that sense, then, is to survive. Yeah, yeah, to survive, yeah. yeah. There's no there's, higher purpose in yeah, there's no higher Dennett's meaning. understanding, yeah. Now, yeah, I've exactly. heard of Daniel Dennett. I've never read any of his stuff, but he's well known as a materialist, isn't he? A hard materialist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he is, yeah. Yes, mm. yes. So, yeah. where do you stand with that? What are your views on that? 
Well, um, I, uh, I always bear, even before I was a Buddhist, I always found it difficult. You know, starting with my grandmother, who uh, who was Catholic, and he said, oh, you know, um, if, if they want to come from apes, so, well, I'm, I'm not from an ape. I, I come from God, and you come from God. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, that's obviously a bit of a naive view. But uh, uh, starting from that, I always found it a bit difficult to... Uh, yeah, this uh, the Darwinian view that it's all just matter and it's no purpose and going from bottom up, so to speak. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I always found it a bit difficult, and then, um, but then later during my studies, I, I did a course on uh, evolution theory, Darwinian evolution theory, and I also saw how strong this uh, theory is, how strong the explanatory force of it. It's a very good theory. Uh, so I was also very impressed about how much it can explain. Uh, so, so then uh, I was a bit uh, in doubt, maybe, maybe it's true after all. Uh, and then I found this uh, book by Thomas Nagel. I have it here. Uh, Mind and Cosmos. Yes, I've seen that. I've seen that in Water Systems. Yeah. It's a very good book. And so the undertitle is Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian neo Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Mm. So uh, I read this book and I, yeah, I was very impressed by his argument. And uh, yeah, so that gave me uh, tools to, criti to critique this Darwinian view, actually. So I was very oh, happy with that's that. That's very yeah. interesting because... Mm. You say you you began, mm. uh, not. I think you said not. You didn't like Dar yeah, Darwinian exactly. view, and yeah. not liking something is not a good enough reason to disagree with it, is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. One could say that you didn't like it, and then you found someone else who gave you the reason not to like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a bit like that. I think yeah. it's generally like this with all uh, all philosophers. They come from a certain uh, point of view, but it's more more question of temperament, of intuition, uh, yeah, and then later they find the good reasons for it. Yes. Um, yeah, also the materialists. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, the yeah. the, the famous um, what they called uh, militant atheists. They seem to have made their mind up before they even thought about it. And yeah, exactly. They came up with yeah. reasons why, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, same with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same with all of us, I suppose. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. tell us about uh, Thomas Nagel. Where, where's he coming from? What's his idea? Well, the Thomas Nagel, I find him a very uh, inspiring person. So he was born in 1937 in Hungary. Hungary. Uh, he's but Hungarian? Then, uh, yeah, he's Hungarian. Well, oh. from birth. Well, but then he, uh, very, on a very early age, he moved to America. So he he lived all all his life in America, and then he became a very f famous philosopher. And uh, so he became famous in the sixties or seventies, very early on, with this uh, article called "What's It Like to Be a Bat." Yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, so that was a groundbreaking article uh, in which he argues that uh, you can't uh, possibly uh, reduce consciousness to brain matter. To, well, you can, um, there's always a first person point of view in consciousness. It's like to be something, it's like to taste an apple, it's like to have a thought, it's like to walk around 
Yeah, and it's even like so. It's like to be a bat. What's it like to be a bat? So, uh, a bat has certain experiences, and and we can how. However much you know about a bat, you can know everything about bats, how they live, how their brains work and how their digestion works and everything you know about. But you can never experience uh, the bat-like uh, existence. Why did you use a bat and not a mouse? Or a... Well, I think a bat is, is strange enough. It's really strange yeah, because it doesn't have ears and uh, eyes as, as we have, but it does have some sort of sense. Because it has this echolocation, and uh, yeah, it's very strange, but not too strange. Strange so, enough to be unimaginable, isn't it? How can yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Negotiating yourself around the physical world without eyes and ears. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and yet you, you perceive things in a very strange kind of way. Mm. So we can, we can imagine, uh, I can imagine how it would be for me as I am now. Uh, you know, if I would go into the body of a bat, I, I could imagine that. But that's not the same thing as experiencing bat-like existence. Uh, well, the same goes for I, I can't uh, experience you, I can't experience, uh, well, anything from the inside. So that there's a big gap between experiencing, and that's from the inside, and knowing something from the outside, or the subjective point of view and the objective point of view. So I know that you're you're Sila Vardin. I know you you're living in uh, mm. the Netherlands. I mm. know you're a philosopher and a Buddhist. I know all that about you, but I I I can't get inside you to know what it's like to be you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what has all that got to do with evolution? Uh, well. Um, it, it's about the the heart problem because this this same thing it was later called uh, the heart problem, uh, and he comes back on this problem in this book is actually one of his main arguments uh, that um, so the uh, Darwinian point of view it's based on what's called uh, psychophysical reductionism. So everything uh, psychological, like the mind, consciousness. Uh, and also other things, uh, and they get reduced to the body, to physical things. And well, and uh, and well, his main point is that you can't reduce it. You can't reduce mind to a physical matter without losing uh, the essential of mind, namely the first-person experience. So you lose uh, in this reduction process. You lose the first-person experience the the, uh, the look from inside so to speak that uh, seems such an obvious point that you yeah. it's hard for me to understand why anyone would dispute that and call that into question uh oh, well because uh, uh, people tend to think if i know everything about uh, the, uh, the brain and then consciousness sort of rises up it's like a it's, yeah, again, something random. It doesn't mean anything. It's just uh, you know, all these cells wandering around and they, they build up a certain body. Uh, well, and then, uh, yeah, you have this experience and uh, it, it gets explained away, so to speak. Yeah. I'm still trying to understand what it might be like to be a materialist, not a bat, but a materialist, <laughs> uh, a hard yeah. materialist, because... 
presumably uh. they do experience meaning in their lives. I, I can't imagine they don't experience meaning on purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the materialist view itself is a meaning, is a way of meaning, creating meaning. But uh, it's got. Uh, well, I think if I imagine how it is to be a materialist, I think it's very, uh, it's freeing in a, in a way. It's you, but you don't have to hold on to everything. You can just live by the day. You don't have to believe in anything, which is also sort of liberating. You know, all these beliefs you can just throw away. Uh, I think there's a uh, liberation in it. That's what it's, what's attractive. Yeah. But um, mm. rather different from the liberation that we understand as Buddhists, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, well, I think materialism is, uh, yeah, from a Buddhist point of view, you could call it a form of nihilism. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, so there was this other guy, uh, David Chalmer, he also uh, went into this consciousness problem and he imagined, uh, he asked the question, why, why aren't we a race of zombies? So, uh, because for, from the evolutionary point of view, we would function just as well uh, if we would just be like we are, exactly the same, but without experience. And uh, we would be, you know, uh, philosophically speaking, like a zombie, mm. you know, or you know, a very sophisticated robot that can do everything that we do, and it would no. survive. It would survive just as well. So that's a but sort of first-person experience. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that's a sort of refutation of the um, materialist point of view, because we do have experience, mm. but it doesn't have any uh, uh, explanatory force in the evolution theory. Mm. Okay, so uh, mm. let's go back to Darwin and uh, his mm. understanding of evolution. There's so much truth in that, isn't there? Yes, yeah, true. So much. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Is the problem with it that, it's all very true, except he misses something really important out, or... Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, that's what I think, yeah. That's what Thomas Nagel also thinks. Uh -huh. you know, the, the, the basic uh, uh, thoughts, they're very well, you know, they're, uh, they're very useful, very fruitful. You know, that is the, you know, because before it was like a, like a miracle. It just it was just created somehow. And so uh, how this all comes about, it's very well wonderful, really. And uh, yeah, it, it's a very good theory. But so well, according to so Thomas Nagel, it, this is not just uh, his only point, but this, his main point. He has more reasons, uh, more things that you can't reduce uh, but you know let's keep it with the mind and then uh, he says so there is in, there are gaps uh, in this theory which in itself is a good theory so let's let's try to mend the gaps well and then he comes up with uh, several uh, possible solutions and one of them is panpsychism oh no, wait a minute yeah. That's a solution to something, to a gap. What, what's the gap that that solves? Well, the, the gap between uh, uh, the third-person experience and the first-person experience, because the, the gap between mind and matter, so to speak. Oh. Because okay. uh, if you have met, we think of matter 
as something dead, something without uh, mind, something without life, something that's uh, just physical dead matter. But that's relatively new. We only started to think of matter like that in the 16th century. Before that, matter, it comes from the word mater, which means mother. So uh, it was matter was thought of as something alive, something vibrant, something even with mind qualities. So in, what happened in the 6th century to change people's minds? Well, uh, materialism happened, Galileo happened. So there's another book, Galileo's Error. <laughs> uh, it, it's about, well, it's about panpsychism, actually. It's a very good discussion of panpsychism. So, I, didn't, I didn't see the author. Who's the author of that book? Uh, Philip Goff. Oh, okay, good. So uh, now you've mentioned panpsychism. Can you explain to me what that is? Well, panpsychism is the uh, thought, the, the theory that everything uh, material has a sort of proto uh, mind particles in it. So uh, mind goes all the way down, all the way down to, to the basic particles of the universe. So uh, as it is now, it's like uh, as the, uh, the materialist view is uh, the matter you know, builds our body, so to speak, and then like a sort of random thing, the mind suddenly comes up. Um, so there's a split between mind and matter. And uh, well, panpsychism is a thought that uh, even in the basic particles of the universe, the atoms and the neutrons and whatever, uh, they already have a mind quality in themselves or a proto-mind quality, the, yeah, the potentiality of mind. So mind is all, yeah, it goes all the way down. Mm. Mm. That's hard for me to understand, I must say, uh, when I look at what I think of as dead things, stones, uh, biros, um, this cup, for instance. So <laughs> yeah. to try and figure out how that has some kind of mind in it is, I don't think I can do it, actually. Well, it's not mind as we have mind, but it's more like a, you know, like a plant. It's, it's not so difficult to imagine a, a, a plant is growing towards the sun. So and, that's yes, and it, it moves, doesn't it? Where the sun moves, yeah. it moves with the yeah, sun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. But a plant so is alive, and a cup isn't. Uh, no, 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 but uh, but cups is uh, is a form of matter, and matter uh, because if matter becomes uh, in certain constellations, it becomes a plant. Plant is also is also matter. So this. Uh, when uh, certain particles of matter, of, of, of um, they, they can come into chemical reactions with each other, and these chemical reactions, you could say, uh, yeah, that's already sort of mind quality in them. Wow! Yeah. So I, I, well, it, yeah, it's not mind, but it's proto mind. It's uh, the possibility of mind. Yeah. Proto means possible, does it? It's possibility of mind. Yeah, for before mind, it's like, yeah. Oh, that's the clock. Yeah. Ah. <laughs>
<laughs> yes, just to let our hearers know that um, we did this interview beforehand, but halfway through the the, uh, the church bells were ringing and ringing. We had to completely ruin the sound. So this is the second time we've done this interview, but they're only going to ring once or twice. Um, now, I, I've been challenging you a bit about this, partly because I'm finding it hard to come to grips with it, but also um, I... Uh, you and I both saw an interview recently with Rupert Sheldrake mm. and the, he was talking about panpsychism there. Yeah. And I think his interviewer was trying to understand what he meant. Mm. And his interviewer said the word consciousness and Sheldrake said, oh, but of course, mind isn't necessarily conscious because yeah, yeah, there's yeah. lots of things that our mind does that we're not conscious of. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that helps a little bit, I think, for me to understand what you're saying. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Yeah, a lot, lot of what our mind does, we don't know about. Well, most of it, actually, yeah. Yes, yes. So you can very well imagine that uh, fungi, for, for example, that they live in the earth and they... Uh, yeah, that there's some sort of mind in it. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know if you know about the research about trees. Um, yeah, I yes. heard about that. Yeah, yes, there's this yeah. fascinating book by a German uh, forester yeah. who yeah. Uh, read all the science. But he looks after woods or forests. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they kind of look after each other. The trees look after. Yeah, exactly. Each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, when one of the trees is um, ill, yeah. uh, the other trees through their roots they they give it sustenance. Yeah. So in a way, the the forest is alive, but mm. it also has a mind. Or many minds, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Or a sort of mind. It's very difficult to not project our own sort of mind into the woods. What's it like to be a forest? Yeah. So they're all friends with each other and they take care. And this sort of language is very, uh, well, very seductive almost. But there's something in it. Also that the earth is, is like an organism uh, rather than a me mechanism. So uh, we've learned to see things as, as mechanical. And if you uh, go into panpsychomism, it allows you to see the world more as an organism mm. rather than as a mechanism. Mm. Well, And that's also why I think it's important now with climate change and all this. So we need to change. We need to go through a whole paradigm change. Mm. Uh, it, it's also, it's not just a matter of uh, science, but also of pure survival. Really. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you and I could have a long discussion about climate change, <laughs> but we won't. Um, <laughs> no. uh, so now, uh, I do want to go back to something you said earlier about yeah. random. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Dennett says everything is random, writ, writ large yeah. in a way. Uh, yeah. So that leaves no room for... Um, well, I said it leaves no room for meaning, but you said, well, even that has some kind of meaning, but it doesn't seem to, we're not mm. going anywhere. Yeah, uh, yeah. The species aren't going anywhere in particular. We're not after something. We, we're not yeah. getting any better in a way. We're just getting better at survival. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, the, so, the, where do you stand with that? Well, that's another point of uh, Thomas Nagel. So his first point is panpsychism. Let's let's look at panpsychism, uh, and and his other point is uh, let's look at uh, the the thought that there's a direction uh, in the universe, in in 
in evolution. So let's let's assume, let's go from the hypothesis. It's not a claim, but it's a hypothesis that uh, that we're moving towards uh, awakening. Well, he doesn't use the word awakening, but it's something like awakening, some like more consciousness. So let's assume that uh, there's an inherent tendency in the universe. It's not uh, something like God, but it's like a natural laws. Uh, they move towards uh, yeah, this gradual more awakening. Uh, well, so together with panpsychism, uh, these two thoughts they can, yeah, they can lead to a whole different paradigm in evolution theory. Mm. Mm. So, of course, you're making me think of our teacher Sangharachta talks about the lower evolution and the yeah. higher evolution. The yeah. lower evolution has taken us to where we are, mm-hmm. and then after that, it's a matter of choice whether you want to evolve further mm-hmm. um, to Buddhahood. So, I'm you and I are very familiar with that, but can you say a little bit more about um, Thomas Nagel, where he thinks we might be going? You said more mind, but I don't really know what that means. Uh, well, um, yeah, there's a quote uh, I didn't uh, um, think of uh, getting this quote, but I can't find it so quickly. But uh, there's a certain sense, a certain sentence in this book that... Uh, he says, so, well, let's go from the hypothesis, let's uh, hypothesize that there's that the universe is moving towards, uh, well, I don't, I don't know the exact word to use, but more mind-like quality, more awakening quality. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so the, the, there's an inherent purpose. There's a, well, it's basically Aristotle. Aristotle also had this view that uh, we're moving towards something. It's like a natural law. <clears throat> so um, I guess uh, you're talking about teleology? Yeah, I'm talking about the tele- natural teleology. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, things are changing, but they're not just changing randomly or just in order to survive, but we're changing towards something. Yeah. Mm. Well, Thomas Nagel said there's a natural bias towards uh, more awakening. So if all conditions are equal, then there's a sort of natural bias towards a certain direction. Mm. Uh, and yeah. is that simply a theory or has he been looking at you know the, the evolution of species to, to back that up? Yeah, well, uh, he's a very good... Uh, uh, philosopher, because he's very careful and he doesn't claim anything, but he just says the, the theory as it is now is not a good theory. It has uh, certain gaps that are just uh, that you can't uh, solve within this paradigm. So let's look at another paradigm. And then, well, he also sees many problems. There are many uh, theoretical problems, things that are not solved. Um, but he says, so let's look at it at least. Let's change our paradigm. Because, uh, you know, what we did so far didn't work. So uh, let's try something else. Let's, yeah. And if you have a new paradigm, then you will start uh, asking different questions and you will get different answers. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I remember reading a book review by the British philosopher Mary Midgley. Do you know her? No, I don't know. No. Ah, she was uh. a friend of um, 
Iris Murdoch, they were they were great friends. Okay, yeah. and uh, Mary Midgley had been reviewing the Science Delusion by Rupert Sheldrake, uh, and yeah. uh, she said something along, not exactly like this, but something like this that. Um, Scientific theories, you shouldn't take them as facts, but more like creative yeah. ideas, which you yeah. can work with for a while, but then they, they yeah, don't exactly. work after a while, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So depending on what questions you ask, you will get different answers. Mm -hmm. So if, if the whole scientific community would start investigating panpsychism, then they would get answers in that direction. And, and if they assume that it's nonsense, then you know, they won't find anything because you know, they, they won't be looking in in a proper way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Is it, is it um, again, referring back to Rupert Sheldrake, mm. I think he is of the opinion that most scientists are materialism materialists or that mm. science itself tends towards materialism. Would you say that's true? Well, not in, not in general, but in, in this uh, culture, um, in, in our times, so to speak. But, you know, in science, in, in other times, we're completely different. Ah, okay. But now well, I, don't, I don't think science in general is uh, inherently materialistic. Uh -huh. mm. uh -huh. it's, it's rationalistic, but not materialist. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So um, what I'm thinking is that... Uh, if, if it's true that most scientists these days tend towards the materialist viewpoint, or mm. as Sheldrake says, many of them don't, but they don't say so. You know, they, yeah, exactly. They that, they well, that I think that's very true. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, I think that's very true. There's this general um, sense that we, yeah, you need to be uh, materialistic because otherwise you won't be accepted in the uh, in the academic community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so, what he said, uh, yeah, I agree with it. That, yeah, so, so uh, certain ideas just aren't going, certain questions won't be asked because they have yeah. to hold on to a certain worldview. Yeah, exactly. Because you won't get funded or your promoter won't accept it or yes. and, and these sort of things. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So thank you very much, Silavard, and that was really fascinating. Um, yeah. Quite a lot to think about there. Um, uh -huh. And I would, I would like to interview you again about other topics in future. Yeah, sure. I would be happy to, yeah. Yes, great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.